So many things have ruined my childhood So I go online to bitch and cry It feels like all of Hollywood is up against me They even made Optimus Fly New versions of what I grew up with Are being remade, rebooted and retried My adolescence is under attack now I think that a part of me has died Aliens, uh -huh, uh -huh. Predators, uh -huh, uh -huh. Marvel, uh -huh, uh -huh. DC, uh -huh, uh -huh. maybe it doesn't all quite sting Okay, well, except maybe for that Jar Jar Binks Could it be I've misunderstood? This podcast ruined my childhood Hello and welcome to This Podcast Ruined My Childhood. I'm Phil Durasmo, and with me is Eric Walensky. Welcome to the podcast, pal. Hey, Phil Durasmo. yippee ki mother podcaster. So you guessed it, folks. We're going to be talking about the diehard Synchology? What, what is that? I don't know that's if there's a word for that. I don't know. That's that's a good question. Synchology. I'm, we'll just say that. Uh, let's like say that. let's say trilogy plus one and sort of another one. <laughs> that's that's a really good way to describe this series. It is definitely a an awesome trilogy, but then it's two other movies that were. I mean, they were movies. For sure, <laughs> you can they, say they that. Out, you can you say, say it. They, they came out on the big screen. I actually paid to go see them in movie theaters. So I mean, they are movies. Um, <laughs> so I guess everybody's getting a pretty quick glimpse into what we think about Die Hard four and five. But let's take everybody back to Nakatomi Plaza and think about one of the best Christmases I've ever lived. Yes. So let's let's settle this debate right out the gate. Go for it. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie to you? Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, same it, with me. Yes, it is one hundred percent a Christmas movie, and it's funny. Two quick little stories. One for Christmas two years ago, Liz got me. Uh, it's a Die Hard: The Night Before Christmas book. Oh, yep. And it's the story of a night before Christmas, but it's it's parodied into Die Hard. And, you know, Hans calls out the terrorists by name on Uli, on Yakshoff. And, you know, and he, he's naming all these like German names. And and uh, anyway, I read it every Christmas. It is so funny. And uh, mm -hmm. it, it the best part of it is you're reading it. And the first thing I'm thinking is, wow, it's a pretty adult movie to turn into a quote unquote kids book. And it ends with and Merry Christmas, yippee Kaye, mofo. And <laughs> I thought that was the best. <laughs> I laughed out loud and I still laugh every time I read that book. That's um, great. The other thing, I was at one of my mom's Christmas concerts. She plays in a lot of bands and they always have their, their Christmas concerts and in between songs to give the bands a few minutes of rest, the conductor will, you know, or not the conductor, the MC will ask some questions and, uh, or, or give some tidbits about the song you're going to hear. And it was Christmas. And he's like, so folks, why don't you just name some of your favorite Christmas movies? 
And and he goes, you there? And somebody said, white Christmas. And then he looks in my direction and he's like, what about over there? And I shouted out, die hard. <laughs> <laughs> that got some laughs from the crowd. And to his credit, the MC even went, I never thought about that before, but you're right. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. I mean, it is a seminal Christmas movie. It needs to be watched in my household every December. Oh, yeah. Yep. That and Gremlins always get watched every December. They are two of the best Christmas movies ever made. Yes, Gremlins as well. That's another good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know how they do those uh, CineScreen things where they play the old movies on the big screen again? A lot of movie theaters do that. Die yep. Hard is always a part of the the ones that they play around the holidays. And we went and saw Die Hard on the big screen. I think it was January 2nd whatever the date was that coincided. It was the last movie in their Mm -hmm. holiday series and they played Die Hard. And uh, I tell you what, I've only ever seen to that point. I'd only ever seen Die Hard on, on the small screen. I I only saw Die Hard originally on HBO. Uh, Die Hard 2. I only saw on HBO. I've never seen Die Hard 2 on the big screen, but, uh, but I finally got to see Die Hard on, oh man, and what a movie! I think that thing yep. it holds up. It, it stands the test of time, and I will go on record as saying it is plot hole free. For an action movie of that caliber, there is not a sequence. There's not a point that I can point at and go, "But that's the one." Th-. There's not a single part of it. Mm-hmm. I don't question any of you. I, no, I agree wholeheartedly. It is a almost perfect movie. You know, there's very few movies out there that I would say fit the bill as a completely perfect movie. And Die Hard is like on the cusp. I don't, I just think probably some of the dialogue, you know, it doesn't stand the test of time. But if you think about it from the time it was made, it's pretty darn perfect. Yeah, and I probably don't look too closely at that when I try to look for my perfect movie. I'm looking more at the story itself, the elements mm-hmm. of story, right? You know, as, as we've been doing, these podcasts, plot, as you said, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I've, I've gone on and on about tightening a plot and overcomplicating it, et cetera, et cetera. But die hard, man, start to finish. There's no scene where I go, oh, but this is the part. Why did he do that? Or why would he mm-hmm. do that? Every motivation is perfect. Yep. Nobody does yep. anything out of character or just to further a storyline or a plot line or anything. I, I love it. Die Hard's perfect. Yep. Yep. And a shout out to Argyle. He's amazing. <laughs> One of the best characters <laughs> in the movie. <laughs> I love me some Argyle. Oh, man. He's the best. I love when he turned up on Head of the Class, too. Remember that TV show? Yep, I sure do. He came in in, like, season three or four when they added, like, three new students. And I'm like, that's a guy from Die Hard. <laughs> well, yeah, Die Hard, I mean, it's it's got everything you could you could ask in an action movie. A relatable action star, um, family put in danger, um, an enormous skyscraper. Carl Winslow. I mean, what else? What else could you two two FBI agents named Johnson? What else could you ask for? And and well, you say relatable action star, and that's that's interesting because 
uh, at the time, I, it is 1988, so I believe I would have been in seventh grade, going into eighth grade maybe. And mm-hmm. uh, I had not seen the movie, but I knew of it. And I wanted to see it, but I was too young because it was rated R, so I wasn't going to go see it on the screen. Parents weren't going right. to take me. Too young. But I remember my teacher at the time, and uh, he mentioned that he saw it. And I was like, really? You saw you saw Die Hard? And he goes, ah, Bruce Moonlighting Willis as an action star? <laughs> I don't see it. And that was a big thing then. He was only really known for, for moonlighting yep. uh, and, and being a comedic actor. I think he had uh, Blind Date, I think, came out in 87. Yeah. Yeah, he was, he was only known as a comedic actor, and he was paid a pretty good windfall for this movie, too. He was paid $5 million, which at the time was a lot of money. Yeah. For for an unproven action star. Right. right. And, and and you read you read down the list of people who they wanted for it. I mean, all the names are up there. De Niro, um uh Harrison Frank Ford. Yeah, yeah, Frank Sinatra because of uh well, for those of you who don't know, Die Hard is actually based on a book called Nothing Lasts Forever. And uh it was written in 1979 and he, uh The main character had a a little bit of a different name, and he wasn't an off-duty cop. He was a retired cop, uh, consultant in security. And the writer of that book actually had another novel, and Frank Sinatra played Bruce Willis's character, John McClane, but the other character's name in the book, in a 1968 movie called The Detective. And so he actually got first offer at 73 years old. They had to offer it to him because he originally played the character. So that would have been a very different movie. (laughs) Yes, it would have. (laughs) But I'm very happy we got the movie we got with the actor we got. And the reason I say he's relatable, it seemed like you had some question around that. And the reason I say he's relatable is because he wasn't a huge muscular Stallone or Schwarzenegger. You know, he was like the everyman, lean, but had muscles, but not too fit, not towering over people, you know, not six foot five. Right. Um, Not six five. He was just a relatable guy that had some good puns because he's a New Yorker, which for me also made him more relatable because I'm from the Bronx and they're from, I shouldn't say New Yorker. He's from Jersey, but he's a New York cop. So all of that played into what I loved about him. Now, I, same as you, didn't see it on the big screen because in uh, in 88, I was seven years old. So there's no way I would have seen the movie um, on the big screen at that time. Your I didn't parents were taking you to R-rated movies? <laughs> they unfortunately weren't. Um, not until uh, I was a bit older. But Die Hard 1, Die Hard 2, and Die Hard with a Vengeance, I didn't see on the big screen. Um but I do vividly remember watching Die Hard with a Vengeance with my dad in our living room and just loving every minute of it. And the reason I got to see it, I, it was on like Showtime or, you know, one of those movie channels. And I just sat down and he was like, hey, come watch this movie with me. And I was probably, you know, young at the time. I don't, I was, you know, 14, 15. Yeah. So did you see Die Hard 3 first then? I. Saw Die Hard 3 before I saw Die Hard 2. That's for sure. But I know I had seen the first Die Hard at a friend's house on a sleepover at one point when I was like probably 12. 
Hmm. Okay. So I know I'd seen Die Hard 1. I hadn't ever seen Die Hard 2. And then my dad sat me down to watch Die Hard 3 with him when I was like 14. And I loved it. I love Samuel L. Jackson. It made me a lifelong Samuel L. Jackson fan and a lifelong Bruce Willis fan. Well, it's it's interesting. So, so you do say um, that he's a relatable action hero. And that I totally get. When, when I when I was saying about, you know, him being a comedic actor, that was, that was some of the adults that I had talked to. That was my teacher who had said, because they, you know, again, frame of reference, I was only 12, 13 years old and I had watched Moonlighting too. And I, but, but to me back then actors were actors. It didn't, you know, I, I didn't really frame him as he is a comedic actor, whereas an adult has a different kind of lens. They look at things through, they, they couldn't see that same teacher could not also buy Michael, Mr. Mom Keaton as Batman. That (laughs) was his thing. Mr. Mom is going to be Batman. That doesn't make any sense. But for me, I'm just like, no, he's an actor. He's in the movie. That's what you do. You act Mm -hmm. differently. So I didn't have like this set uh, image of anything, but, but you say the, the exactly right, that he is the most relatable everyday action hero versus like, you know, a Schwarzenegger or a Stallone, they're totally ripped. They're all jacked up. He, he was the perfect everyman. But what I don't like as we get into our discussion here is each movie takes him a little further away from the everyman. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And by yeah. Die Hard 5, he's this invincible maniac. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... It, it gets away from just like, oh, I could do that if I needed to. You know, he wrestles an F-15 to the ground in Die Hard 4. <laughs> I mean, I guess if I had to, I would try it. But <laughs> yeah. my goodness, it's nothing I would raise my hand to volunteer for. Yeah, it's uh, it, it definitely takes the Fast and Furious franchise mantra of bigger and badder. When you yeah. get to live free or die hard and a good day to die hard. But um, the first three movies, I think, are really well put together action films. Agreed. They're the, and and I, I don't I think you're right in that he got a little more invincible each time. He was a little more of a superhero each time. But even in Die Hard with a Vengeance, he still he still got really hurt and he still was showing the pain and he was still joking through it. Where in you know, four and five, he's just like a robot. Yeah. Yeah. Like Terminator here. You know? Yeah. He's just laughing at, in some mm-hmm. of those scenes in four, it's all he's doing is laughing going, ha ha ha. And you're like, really? This no good yeah. line after that. Yeah. Well, let's, let's take a step back though. And we've just brushed over Die Hard 2 and we haven't really got into Die Hard 3. I don't want us to get too, too down on Die Hard 4 and 5 before we talk about some of the great stuff. So oh, for sure. Let's let's go back. You know, so 88 was the first one, 90 was the second. So you saw them all in order, though. I did see them all in order, but uh, not in on the big screen. So, you know, HBO came out, and then after my parents watched it, then it's like, sure, this isn't terrible. It's, you know, nothing grotesque. You can watch this. So I watched Die Hard, and then Die Hard 2 comes out, and... Again, it's passable. I can watch Die Hard 2. So then Die Hard 3 I saw on the big screen. And then, of course, 4 and 5, I was an adult. And I saw those on the big screen. Um, 
But yes, Die Hard 2, though, I still have never seen on the big screen. Die Hard 1, I've seen on replays. Hmm. So um, I think they're definitely, though, at least nostalgia-wise for me, seeing Die Hard 1 on the big screen. It's just a great experience. And, and it even gave me a little more opportunity to kind of scrutinize it. Because when you're seeing it that big, you can see more details than you wouldn't notice on the on the little screen. Like off topic a little bit, Back to the Future, I had never seen it on the big screen until recently. And one of the clocks in the very opening sequence of Back to the Future, there's a man hanging on the big hand of one of the clocks which is a foreshadow, obviously, of the right. end of the movie. I never noticed that in all these years watching Back to the Future on the small screen. Mm-hmm. So so seeing the immense action of Die Hard on the large screen, it just gave me a, so much better appreciation of the film. Yeah, it's it's great. It's a great premise. It's the thing, one of the things that I find it hard to believe in nowadays. I mean, 1988 is a very different time, but their plan was to only steal $640 million. I mean... They went through a lot of trouble just for six hundred forty million. You'd think it'd be like a cool billion for the, all the work they did. Good old Hans Gruber, one of the best villains in uh, in an eighties movie too. Ah, I was doing my research on this. Rickman is actually quoted as saying he did not believe himself to be the villain of the movie. Because uh, well, that's, that's the right frame of mind you have to have if you are the villain of the movie, right? But he understands that he's still not doing right. But as a theater actor, because this was his first movie ever, was in Hans Gruber, he saw himself as a guy who wanted something and made choices to get it. I thought that was a pretty interesting take on Hans Gruber, because when I really think about his role in the film, he really isn't villainous especially when holly goes into the room and has her demands and is like there's a pregnant woman out there can she go into an office no but i'll have a couch provided okay well everybody's got to go to the bathroom unless you want a big mess out there and he's like i'll take them in shifts anything else and he literally seems reasonable like almost likable he's not a bad guy he's just a bad guy yeah isn't Except, that a quote from, uh, <laughs> from Wreck-It Ralph? <laughs> oh, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, except, yeah, ultimately the plan was to blow up all the hostages at the end so they could get away. <laughs> yeah, but that's just to, you know, get the cops busy, you know, so they can get away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They'll be on a oh. beach earning 6%. 12%. Or 12%. 12%. Still to this day, I, I want to know your thoughts on this because I saw, like I said, I saw Die Hard 2 third and it is my least favorite of the original trilogy. Now, is is my bias because I saw with a vengeance before 2 putting it in that order or is Die Hard 2 truly a lesser film than Die Hard with a Vengeance? Well, that's a good question because I loved Die Hard 2. I I thought there were some really good action sequences in there. I I thought there were some great lines, um, which while we're on that subject real quick, I love watching Die Hard on like a TBS or a TNT where they have to edit the language (laughs) because Die Hard 2 has the best ending when he lights 
the the gasoline so it's or the jet fuel so it's going to blow up the airplane and yippee kaye mr falcon yep. <laughs> <laughs> what a great edit <laughs> even better than the original line depending on your mood <laughs> but is it a better edit than what we talked about in our second episode which was the predator Oh, remember the edit in that one? Oh, yes. <laughs> this is where we got to compare and contrast. Is Mr. Falcon better than pudding? Pudding for pudding, 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 pudding. for pudding. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, I, I'm putting them both up there. I'm, I'll think about that one. All right. <laughs> I'll, I'll have to really think about that because one's got. Uh, yeah. Boy, that's a great question. I'm going to put them at a tie right now. I got to okay. go for it. Okay. All right. So you do love Die Hard 2, though. So do you do you rank Die Hard 2 ahead of Die Hard with a Vengeance? Well, to answer that question, I have to go a little further into the trilogy and just say here is what I didn't like about the evolution of the series is Die Hard 1 trapped in a building. Die Hard 2 trapped in an airport. Die Hard 3 trapped in New York City. Die Hard 4 trapped in the tri-state area. And then Die Hard 5 basically trapped on the planet because now he's international. So so I didn't like Die Hard 3 the first time I saw it because I, – I, I, let me take that back. It's not that I didn't like it. I just did not like that the Die Hard feelingness of it, of being trapped and having to stop these bad guys because he's in New York City and he has so much at his disposal to help him, even though the script did a very good job of trying to eliminate those. You can't use your radios. You have to use public transportation. We're going to be watching you. And But to an extent, though, he could have maybe found help eventually at, at certain points in the, in the, in the movie. He could have sure. gotten help. And that's what I didn't like about Die Hard 3. But the more I've watched Die Hard 3, I've, I've come to very much enjoy it. So um, I yeah, like – I just think you know, growing yeah. up in New York, I think I, I, I've said before on other shows that we've done where things connect to New York that I feel a kindred um, – like I feel like I'm, I'm understanding more of the movie because I know – where they are and what they're talking about, like the streets that they're on, um, when they go to the baseball stadium, when they're at the the pier. I mean, all of that is stuff that I know and I was used to seeing because I, you know, was until I was 10, we were, you know, in the Bronx, just outside of New York City. So uh, I just felt connected to it. A connection for sure. Yeah. And so that's why I just think that I liked it more also, you know, aside from seeing it out of order. Um, plus, I mean, Zeus is just the best. Yes. It's been central park and they have to do the, the filling up the water jugs in the fountain. Right. Like I just love anytime I go to New York and see that fountain, I'm like, that's diehard. <laughs> it's fun. It's funny you say that because, uh, Liz had just gone to New York city last October for the very first time in her life. And, now, whenever we watch a movie that takes place in New York City or a TV show that's in New York City, she'll turn to me and go, I understand that now. It <laughs> makes sense to me now. I can relate. Yeah. 
it's hard for me coming from there to not have people relate to it. And I, I know that I'm lucky that I grew up so close to New York City that I get, you know, I would say probably 30% of TV shows and a good 15% of movies probably take place in New York or Los Angeles and Chicago. And I've been to all three of those so many times that I feel connected to the places, you know? Mm-hmm. But now I'm getting yeah. off, off topic, but... Well... Yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting in how you put it that... Trapped in a building, trapped in an airport, trapped on an island in the city of Manhattan. It's too, maybe it's too expansive. And I guess that makes sense from, from your perspective. Yeah. Die Hard 2, we have a, Die Hard 2, excuse me, Die Harder. We have another villain who has um, some interesting motivation. So Eric, do you even remember what the motivation was for the villain, Colonel Stewart, in Die Hard 2? Well... If you would have asked me this before I wikied it, uh, he would have told you, <laughs> I think he just wanted to rescue the drug dealer, but, <laughs> but not really remembering why. And I guess that just sort of gets glossed over. And ultimately, according to Wikipedia fan page for Die Hard, in his military career, he believed in Esperanza's uh, dogma and continued to kind of assist him. And then when Congress found that out, they were like, no, you can't be helping this guy. He's a drug lord. And then they were going to court-martial uh, Colonel Stewart, but then he was able to escape into exile, apparently with his whole group of guys, before anybody could could stop him. And then he came back. And, uh, you know, now that I'm talking about it, and I haven't seen Die Hard two in a long time and this is one of the scenes that i think would get kind of brushed off to the side i think they ultimately give like his backstory and a little bit of exposition at the beginning when they're talking about esperanza and then when stewart shows up they're like stewart that's the guy he was betrayed us all so it's a very they try to make it simple even though it's complicated that he just betrayed the united states because he believed in the dogma of this drug lord sure and so I, I will say that I don't remember that at all. I just remember explosions, and I remember fighting, and I remember that they were Americans, that McLean was right. fighting this time rather than Germans. Um, and that's kind of the thing with Die Hard 2 for me is it doesn't stick with me. Uh, I could watch it, and I will probably forget a good 33% of it by the next day because it just it never really grabbed me like Die Hard and Die Hard with a Vengeance did. Well, it's funny how you talk about being able to relate to Die Hard with a Vengeance being in New York City because parts of Die Hard 2 were filmed right here in good old Michigan in Alpena. And <laughs> and I can relate to that. Um Who would have thought Actually, I can't. I've driven through Alpena. That's it. I know where it is on a map. That's all I know about it. And you, know, uh, you can raise up your hand and say where it is. <laughs> exactly. No. Um, apparently, the scenes that were shot in Alpena were supposed to be shot in the state of Washington, but a heavy rainfall melted all the snow there. And obviously, they needed to look like wintertime, so they had to quickly find a new location, and they went to Alpena because there's an old Air Force base there, and they and that's where they shot the scenes for the terrorists' um, base 
that they had set up at the abandoned church huh. that, that's, that was shot in Alpena. And I believe uh, some of the snowmobile scenes, if not all of them. That's cool. That's, that's a nice little thing on the, on the map for Alpena. I wonder if they have a Die Hard 2, Die Harder tour if you go to the town. Yeah, I should check that out. It's not too far from here. Probably, I'd probably be there in an hour and a half. All right. Let me know how it is. <laughs> so I quickly want to talk about what Die Hard with a Vengeance could have been. Um, I don't know if you, you knew this, but there was originally a script called Troubleshooter that they were going to adapt to be John McClane fighting terrorists on a Caribbean cruise. And yeah. um, they decided to not use that as the basis for Die Hard with a Vengeance. But it ultimately became Speed 2 Cruise Control. Yes. Which is pretty pretty funny that the movie got made and uh, it got made as a sequel to a great movie, but not a really, it didn't turn out to be a great movie. Right. Well, they were afraid, though, initially that that was too close to Under Siege. Mm-hmm. So they that's why they did that. And yeah, the, the, the origin of the script, it bounced around to becoming a lethal weapon at one point. But then Fox decided to do something else with it, and then it got changed again. And then I believe Quentin Tarantino did a little bit of script work on Die Hard 3. Wow. It's, it's amazing how these, these films take their shape. You know, mm-hmm. That's a whole other conversation we could have. But just all the stuff we've talked about over the past several episodes we've done, things change so much, and Hollywood just... Gives us a finished product, and for better or for worse. <laughs> well, it's funny sticking sticking with Die Hard, though. That's what I've kind of thought about four and five, and especially five. Is was this a generic action script? And they were like, "Hey, we could just call the lead guy John McClane and make it a Die Hard," because it, it never feels like a Die Hard movie. It really feels like somebody wrote this for something else and they just changed it enough to be diehard. And, and same thing with four, not as much, but still enough that I've never felt comfortable that diehard four was like a quote unquote legitimate diehard movie. Well there, you just, you just hit that point on the head. I think you said that to me earlier in the podcast, but you, you just vocalized exactly what I want to say about four and five. And I guess we're at the point now we're going to get into them, but those two films are not diehard movies. No, he isn't. He is a shell of John McClane, mm-hmm. uh, Bruce Willis. He he is phoning it in, especially in Five. And I don't know if you've seen any of his direct-to-video, direct-to-DVD, direct-to-digital movies, where he's always like a cop or something, and he he always acts exactly the same as he's acting in Die Hard Five. Really? Yeah. He is just phoning it in for a paycheck, and it's just a bigger budget paycheck that he's getting with the Die Hard franchise. Well, I think I think the movie even goes out of its way to boil John McClane down. This very dynamic character with a lot of parts and pieces to him, but there's the scene in Die Hard 5 when he and his son are in the ballroom, and his son is like... Or, or he's trying to co- connect with his son and, mm-hmm. and his son is like, yeah. no, dad, that's not you. And he's like, what no, do you John, mean? He doesn't call him dad, remember? Well, sure. Right, right. Until the end. Right, yeah, because that's 
never been done before in any movie. Right. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, geez, his daughter was doing it in Die Hard 4. Like, mm-hmm. my gosh. Um, but he says, sure, John, that's not you. And he's like, well, what am I? What, what am I supposed to do? You kill bad guys. <laughs> and to take the character of John McClane and boil him down to you kill bad guys basically summarizes all of Die Hard 5, which is a one-note action movie. No real mm-hmm. drama. The bad guy is barely memorable. It's a kind of confusing plot to get everything even kicked off. And yep. it, oh my goodness, as soon as I heard that, you kill bad guys. And then later on in the movie, when he does connect with his son, and his son actually, they share a real moment, and his son does call him dad. And then the moment ends with Bruce Willis saying, now let's go kill some scumbags. <laughs> uh, yeah, because that's what you do. You're just a scumbag murderer. Come on. <laughs> oh, that's funny you say that because I just watched it today. And I don't even remember that line. I remember them connecting because he called him dad when he fell into the pool and he didn't know if he was drowned, if he drowned or not. But I don't remember him saying, let's go kill some scumbags. Well, there won't be a Die Hard 6 because those guys have enough uh, radioactivity crawling oh, yeah. all over their body, especially <laughs> after going in that water. Yep. Oh, my goodness. So I what cringe. he's referencing, everybody, uh, in A Good Day to Die Hard, which is the fifth movie, they take John McClane to Russia. And in Russia, they eventually, for some random plot points to happen and make sense, they have to go to Chernobyl. And then they blow <laughs> lots of things up and fall into a pool. And they definitely are growing a third arm somewhere. <laughs> Back to that cab scene, though. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> The most memorable part of the movie. <laughs> well, but what I didn't like, though is they're in a cab in the middle of all this traffic. Like they've clearly, they have left the airport when he just flew in, middle of all this traffic, middle of the city, and he decides to then ask, hey, where's the courtroom in Russia or in Russian? Mm -hmm. And then the cab driver turns and in English goes, oh, are you American? And he's like, yeah, oh. How did they get into the middle of traffic without John McClane telling him where he wanted to go and without this cab driver realizing that the most American sore thumb in the world is sitting in the back of his cab? (laughs) You would have thought when Bruce Willis threw his duffel bag in the trunk, the cabbie would have been all over him. American, start spreading the news. Like that Mm -hmm. scene scene does not happen in the middle of traffic. It's like John McClane – teleported into that cab and woke up and then had to go, uh, how do you get to the courthouse? (laughs) Just, (laughs) Oh, it's sloppy, sloppy details like that. It's, it's a weirdly paced, really poorly directed movie. Mm -hmm. And the problem, one of the problems I had with it watching today is the camera work. Whoever was, was working the cameras, they, they definitely used handhelds in a lot of this film because any scene that's a close-up of the actors talking, there's a lot of shaking. They didn't use a steady cam. They didn't have tripods or anything. There was somebody holding the camera. 
Mm-hmm. And it really took me out. The worst, the worst part of it was in the very beginning when you meet John McClane when he's in a gun range. And this guy comes in, brings him the file on his son, and there's the camera on him while he's looking over the file. And instead of just having a steady cam so that you can see him react to this and then see the guy talking to him, it's shaky. And then not even that, but when it goes to the file and he's looking at the file and you're supposed to be trying to read the file with him, it's a shaky cam then too. Yeah, that doesn't make funny. any sense. That's funny you notice that because I thought the same thing. I'm trying to read it and I'm like, was I not supposed to see this? <laughs> Why did you show it to me then? And one of the problems I have is that the film is shot that way for the first probably half or maybe a little more than half, but then it stops at just around the halfway point or just after the halfway point. And it doesn't really do that again until the very end. It's mm-hmm. so weird. It's such an odd decision that I just can't figure out. And honestly, it made me feel like, I, w- I don't want to say queasy, but I definitely felt something in my stomach because of how much the camera was moving when you're supposed to be fixating on a point on the screen. Right. Ugh. So frustrating. Yeah. Just a sloppy, sloppy movie. That at, at, When they finally get the guy that uh, John McClane's son is supposed to be saving and it's all because of a CIA operation to find this file. But the, mm-hmm. the, the guy they're saving has to find a key. Well, where's the key? Oh, it's in this ballroom at the top of this hotel, apparently. And, well, we'll we got to go get it. Well, I think we should be able to get in there pretty easily because that whole ballroom's under construction. <laughs> so I guess that's a pretty bad place to hide a key. Mm-hmm. somewhere that might get put under construction. They could have ripped out that whole wall panel that he reaches behind and grabs the key out of. I'm like, yeah. this was just an excuse to get them in this ballroom so they could shoot glass again yep. and then have this cool helicopter shot and cool in parentheses because yeah, or yeah, air cool. quotes because it's not. <laughs> well, I guess you could put it in parentheses, but that would just look weird. Yeah. It's another moment where they try to show you that John McClane is a superhero and his son is kind of a mini hero. Mm -hmm. Did you notice in the film, the whole movie, he's the one figuring everything out and his son is the idiot, but his son is the CIA agent. (laughs) Right, right. Who probably had to pass crazy aptitude tests and has been undercover for three years on this operation, but John McClane... This retired cop from New York is the one that's figuring everything out. Well, I like how, too, the very beginning of the movie establishes in the cab, in the traffic, that there's so much traffic in this city. But then what's the getaway plan before John McClane intervenes is to get in a car and drive. (laughs) And then there's this whole action chase scene right in front of where they just left, where there was so much traffic, John McClane had to get out and walk. Mm Mm-hmm. It's the continuity of it. And then the whole CIA plan, like because John McClane stopped them for literally 30 seconds, their plan was so down to the second to have that uh, Reaper drone come in and lay down fire or whatever it was supposed to do. And in that kind of traffic, if you're down to 30 seconds, I mean, geez, anything could have stopped them. Yep. It's just a, it's a bad movie. It, It just really is. And, I mean, to get back to the theme of our podcast, does it ruin my childhood? It 
I think it just tarnishes the franchise. Yes, I'm right there with you. It doesn't ruin my childhood, but it it makes Die Hard not as special as it was before 2013 and that movie came out. Or really, 2007 and Live Free or Die Hard came out, which we didn't even t- really touch on. Right. Now, see, to touch on it, uh, yeah. I liked 4. Mm-hmm. I, I enjoyed it. I still thought we're getting too big. We're getting too invulnerable action hero like but i did like the the premise of four i thought timothy oliphant's character again sort of a very bland villain um his overall plan he will used to work for the the government's uh tech division tech division and and then he got fired because he brought up some flaw in the system and they didn't like him anymore. And now he's going to go way over the top and be like, fine, you didn't like that I pointed out a flaw? Then I'm just going to burn everything down and exploit that very flaw. And, yep. and and that makes me think, how did he pass the psychological test to even get as far as he did? Like yep. whether the CIA was right or wrong for firing him because of why they fired him, they ultimately were right because he had a maniac in their presence. <laughs> Well, if you look at the way our government runs, there are maniacs everywhere. So. Well, that's true. So I, I, I'm of two minds of live free or die hard. There's part of me that in 2007, when I saw it, I thought it was the worst thing to happen to John McClane because it was trying to, it was trying to bring an 80s action hero into a new generation yeah. with... Justin Long and Kevin Smith, no less, being cast in the movie. Um, they were definitely trying to make younger audiences go see a Die Hard movie, and I didn't like how hard they pushed that. I, I feel like John McClane is the type of character who, you know, he's old school, he's analog, he just gets shit done, he beats up bad guys or kills bad guys or scumbags, however you want to say it. And, and that's kind of the story right? He's a good, interesting character, as we've seen in Die Hard 1, 2, and 3, that he can carry a movie. So adding Justin Long and then his his little helper of Kevin Smith to the roster made me feel like they were cheapening it for a different audience than Die Hard should be made for. Now, I don't know if that makes complete sense, but I, you know, I just watched it again recently, and I liked it a lot better than I did in 2007. And I think I've only watched it once since 2007. I think I only watched it one time right before Die Hard 5 came out to remember. I did a rewatch of the whole series. And I, it's not as bad as I remembered it to be, but I still have the same problems with it, if that makes sense. Like totally I still don't like sense. some of the decisions they made. I still don't like that John McClane doesn't act like the same John McClane from the movies before. He's a little bit different, which, you know, they're supposed to go with he's older and he's more grizzled and he's a lieutenant now, right, on the police department? Lieutenant detective, yep. But it just, I think it was just the laziness of Bruce Willis not giving his 100%. Um, I would agree. I also would say that uh it's it's on the director too to drag that performance out of an actor sure 
um, I mean, I, I just, I guess I'm trying to be fair to Bruce Willis and say <laughs> that he wasn't completely lazy. I think, I think it, it is on the director to be like, cut. Okay. We're going to do that again. I need some life out of this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I think they just kind of let, you know, at this point he's an icon and I think he just kind of did what he did. And, you know, it's like, Hey, it's gruff. It's quiet. It's, you know, it is what it is. And, yeah, it's still that, that fits McLean, and it and it sort of does, but it, it it's a lazy McLean, right? It's not an animated McLean like you had in the in the first couple movies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The whole idea of a fire sale is really smart. The whole idea of the cyber attack that's going to disable the entire nation's infrastructure—that's mm-hmm. a cool concept. It's a really cool concept, and I, you know, I, I read that they got that idea from a news article. It wasn't even like a script that was written. Somebody read a, a magazine article, not a news article, a magazine article about this fire sale, quote unquote, cyber attack, and decided to build a diehard movie around it. Yeah, see, that makes sense to me, that that the idea of a thing came first, and then let's wrap it in a diehard movie. Mm-hmm. Rather than say, let's write a good diehard movie and, oh, here's something that we could use. It was reverse. And that's what it totally feels like. It's like it was meant for something else. Um, you, you've, you've said something interesting, too, about John McClane is an analog hero. He's, he's from the 80s. He's, you know, he's not a tech guy. He's a just-get-things-done guy. That, I think, is why diehard succeeds is because there is no technology you couldn't make die hard today mm-hmm. because everybody's got the internet and cell phones and technology there'd be cameras there'd be security systems and i know the terrorists you know they managed to cut the wires on some of that stuff but there are just so many other little ways today that Hans would have had to come in with all these obligatory lines of grab their cell phones, shut down the local towers. Right. And just the same way that they had to do that in Die Hard 4, where it's like, oh, man, he must have cut off the satellite links. I can't get my cell phone to work. And that's why Justin Long had to use that little BlackBerry device or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And see, that's kind of my joke anymore, is every horror movie today has to throw out the obligatory, I don't have any bars on my phone. Oh, the top, we're out (laughs) of cell phone range. Or there's got to be a shot of somebody forgetting their cell phone in the car. I left the car, I left it in the glove box where I can get to it later in the movie. But (laughs) right now in the movie, when I don't want it to interfere with my plans or my plot. So I I just, every movie needs that obligatory line of why (laughs) technology doesn't work. (laughs) <laughs> you know cause yep, yep. to picture a whole audience of people just shouting out use your cell phone <laughs> it's like <laughs> oh the towers oh the towers down oh yep. yeah uh, now i get it down. now i get it hey guy behind me that, that's why <laughs> right but yeah that's i think what makes especially die hard four where the whole thing revolves around technology a very difficult sell only because it's supposed to show an analog hero in a digital world, which they did make that work. But then you've got to do so many workarounds of why that analog hero can't figure something out 
digitally because he's not a complete idiot. It's because now, oh, the bad guy shut down that digital stuff. Right, right. And it was a way for them to bring Justin Long along the whole movie because if if you look at this, what would have happened in the real world after he got him to Washington, he would have been left with the agents in charge. Right. But because of the plot of this movie... Bruce Willis needed to take Justin Long with him everywhere he went. Right. Yeah. In the, in the real world, that wouldn't have happened. Exactly. That probably would have been the end of it for Bruce Willis because the only reason the movie kept going is because then he rode along with Justin Long to go to the next location. But right. in the real world, he would not have gone along. And then that would have been that. And in the real world, somebody else a whole team of people would have gone. <laughs> it wouldn't have just been Bruce Willis and Justin Long fighting Maggie Q and two random uh, henchmen right. in this power station. Right, right. But, I mean, I understand the movie needs to keep moving. And then they meet Kevin Smith, who rewrote all of his lines in the movie. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. He's not credited as a writer, but he redid all of his, his scenes. Oh. Um, and that's and what he did with them? That's what he did with them. <laughs> I do appreciate the familial part of the film, how he connects with his daughter, needs to connect with his daughter. But of course, the bad guy has to go abduct his daughter and make her into a damsel in distress that only kind of works because she's John McClane's daughter. Mm-hmm. So she has that edge to her, too. Right. And she, you know, pushes. I did like that she was pushing at the bad guys and she told Justin Long to grow some balls. I mean, that was, it's how I would expect a girl from New Jersey that grew up under a man like John McClane to act. So she played that uh, Mary Elizabeth Weinstead, right? That's her name. She played that character well. But of course, they had to make four about his daughter and then five about his son. Right. And then five just becomes a mess. And his daughter still has a part in five. She takes him to the, to the airport. Mm-hmm. And then she's there to greet both of them at the end. Yeah. Which is very weird. And I'm just wondering where's Justin Long? Because obviously they got together. Like, is he just home hacking systems or something? Like what's he doing? Well, see, I think that would have been a nice touch to, as he's, you know, getting out of the car to, you know, say, mm-hmm. you know, tell Matt, blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, yeah. Something. Yep. You know, I, I would probably give Die Hard 5 a little bit higher of a grade if they had referenced Matt. As weird as it is to say for such a mess of a movie, I would have given them some credit for that as well to make it tie into the universe. Mm-hmm. Just just having the daughter felt like obligatory and I don't know. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. It did feel obligatory. Like they just had to do it to make sure you remembered the movie before it. Right. Die Hard apparently is a difficult movie title to translate into other languages. Mm-hmm. Um, in Germany, Die Hard translates into Die Slowly. <laughs> um, nice. In Greece... Um, it translates into very hard to die. Um, Norway actually die hard translated into action skyscraper. 
(laughs) (laughs) And, and along those lines, Poland had the glass trap, which both of those titles refer to, you know, the glass building that, uh, Bruce Willis is in. And, uh, rather than the, the focusing on the diehard part of it, um, Russia, Die Hard translates into a hard nut to crack. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and Hungary had the most confusing translation. Um, give your life expensive. Wow. Okay. That's what apparently Die Hard. Oh, give your life expensive. Yes, my life is expensive. I would not give it away easily. <laughs> wow. How interesting. I thought that was just funny because I never really thought about – you'd think die hard would be like two little words, very easy to translate into another language. But because of context and and meaning and, of course, the double meaning of die hard and you know right. throwing in die harder and all the other sequels. and But uh, – <laughs> The glass – what was it? The glass – The glass trap. The glass trap two – the glassier trap. <laughs> <laughs> and then Germany would be die slowly, die slowly too, die slowlier. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, it's a good day to die slowly. <laughs> Live free or die slowly. Yeah. Yep. Die slowly, die slowly with, with a vengeance. vengeance. <laughs> or the glass trap with a vengeance, right? I mean, you just got to figure out which way it's going to go. Live free or glass trap? (laughs) It's a good day to give your life expensive. Yeah. (laughs) All right. With that, I think, you know, we've already said that it didn't ruin our childhood. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. It didn't ruin the childhood. And uh, I I think it it just, it tarnished the, the, the franchise. But ultimately, if I can watch one, two, three, no problem, love those. Four, you know, not bad. And then five is a uh, fun, you know, let's drink a couple beers and, you know, laugh uncontrollably at this. Yeah, I guess you're right. You know, I, I, I don't know when I would ever watch five again after watching it for this podcast. It is just like we've already said, it's a mess. I, I, there's some things we didn't even talk about, like how the girl is a double crosser and her dad isn't really like needing protection. He's the one actually pulling all the strings, but then he dies by getting thrown off a building by Jai Courtney's Jack McLean or John McLean Jr. And goes into the back of their helicopter blade, which was actually pretty cool. But then the girl goes crazy and drives her own helicopter into the building to kill herself. Yeah. That made no that sense. Made no sense. None whatsoever. No, but I, I don't know. It, it tarnished the reputation of the Die Hard franchise, and that's a really sad thing from three movies that were so great, just so well done, especially the first one. It's one of the, as we've already said, one of the greatest action movies ever to be made, and and pretty flawlessly. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yeah, my childhood's not ruined, but it is definitely tarnished. Mm-hmm. So with that, Eric, where can people find you? People can find me on my other podcast, Everything, Anything, and Nothing Really. Uh, It's available on iTunes, Podbean, YouTube, 
wherever you find uh, good old fine podcast. And people can follow me on Instagram at Eric underscore Wilinski. That's Eric, E-R-I-C underscore Wilinski, W-I-E-L-I-N-S-K-I. Very nice. Throwing out the Instagram page now. That's great. I'm going to get you on Twitter, and then it's going to go, you know, we're going to blow up after that. <laughs> so everybody can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Fildimo, F-I-L-D-I-M-O, at Fildimo. Uh, I also have been on other podcasts in the Real Fans for Real Movies podcast network, Real Fans for Real Movies, Disorder, Every Disney Film in Order, Grim Grinning Hosts, a podcast about theme parks, and Holy Batcast, the all-Batman podcast. You can also follow this podcast on Twitter at Podcast Ruined. Just one word, Podcast Ruined. Thank you, everybody, for listening in, and we hope that this podcast about Die Hard didn't ruin your childhood. Could it be I've misunderstood? This podcast ruined my childhood. It's this is John. Nice beer. He just wants to spend Christmas with the family. Is Daddy coming home with you? We'll see what Santa and Mommy can do. But when he gets stuck at the office party... Merry Christmas! It'll be a holiday... Merry Christmas! He'll never forget. Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> Welcome to the party, pal! This Christmas... It's a time of miracles, so be of good cheer. Only John can drive somebody that crazy. Get ready to jingle some bells. And deck the halls. With bows of Bruce Willis. Went to the coast. We get together, have a few laughs. Alan Rickman. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee ki mother. Together in the greatest Christmas story ever told. I got some bad news for you, Dwayne. <laughs> Hans. Booby. Eat it, Harvey. Holy shit. I'm starting to get a bad feeling up here. Merry Christmas. Die Hard. This is their idea of Christmas. I gotta be here for New Year's. Die Hard 2, excuse me, Die Harder. We have a uh, another villain who has um, some interesting motivation. He is an American soldier. And uh, can you go into his motivation? Well, Colonel Stewart, boy, he wants to free a Latin American dictator en route to the airport. Right. And that's about all that I understand. <laughs> you want to take a quick time out? This will get sure. edited. Because honestly, I, I don't remember why he wanted to free him now that you're bringing that up specifically. And this is why I have a problem with Die Hard 2, because I don't remember a lot of it. It, none of it sticks out in my head. Like I can, I can. Well, hang on, hang on. Uh, yeah. Before we get back to the podcast, or were you just talking to me? I was just talking to you. Oh, okay. Go ahead. 